Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm How, good. Yeah, it's good. That's good. Yeah, it's uh, we're Audio Judo. Yes. Proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon is the premier podcasting network uh, for music, which now houses 66, at the time of this recording, 66 original music podcasts. Ooh. Uh, one of the programs that I've been getting into lately is Beatles vs. Stones, a year-by-year comparison. Very interesting and informative. And just for the record, Beatles all the way, all the time, without question. <laughs> I keep wanting to listen to that one, and I just I have so many friggin' podcasts that, that I listen to. I'm you like, you gotta I, I got to get on it. I got to get on it. Uh, go to pantheonpodcast.com and listen to it. Decide for yourself. Uh, and then go to audiojudo.com. Catch up on an episode you may have missed. We now have over 50. Um, <laughs> I'd like to welcome uh, some new countries. Uh, recently, Bahrain. Whoa. Uzbekistan. Oman, the Maldives, right? The Maldives, Maldives. Is it Maldives? I've heard it pronounced both way, but I would. I always pronounce it Maldives. Seychelles, (laughs) Maldives. We'll go with that. Seychelles. This week, Kyle goes for the jugular. Yes, by picking an album that I have utterly loathed for the better part of two (laughs) decades. But what's the story, Morning Glory? Ah, shit. Isn't it a fun title? It's not just an album that I can't stand, but it's a band that I hold at the bottom of the rock and roll food (laughs) chain. (laughs) They have sold countless records, so plenty of people like them. Yes. And some might say they are fairly decent songwriters. And like I've said multiple times on this show, everybody's right. Music belongs to you, not to the critics and their opinions, including me. I'm not going to tell you that you shouldn't like it, or how dare you for liking it, but maybe explain to you why I don't like it. But That's I, all. I, I'm Matthew, and I am going to tell you uh, why you're a terrible person for liking it. You should. You just, uh, yeah, you should probably just uh, just walk into the desert. <laughs> oh, well, that's kind of messed up, Matthew. Well, this- I see, I wish I could do a better impression of you. Like, I'm going to have to practice you that. Yeah, try harder. So that I can just get on here and be like, I sure hate Rush. And you, you, then everyone's like, he said it, he, he said, said it, we I, heard it. I said it. Why did I say that? So, uh, in case anybody uh, is not familiar yes? with this album, uh, Oasis is the band. Yes. Uh, uh, what's the story 
Morning Glory mm. is the album. Let's say, start with a little bit about the band. Oasis, sure, sure. Uh, English rock band formed in Manchester in 1991. Uh, they evolved from an earlier group called The Rain. Uh, the band originally consisted of uh, Liam Gallagher on lead vocals and tambourine. Very important instrument. Paul Bonehead Arthurs on guitar. Paul Giggsy McGu- Mc- I can never pronounce this. McGuigan? McGuigan. Is it McGuigan? I think it's McGuigan. McGuigan? McGuigan. And I apologize if anybody out there's last name is McGuigan uh, or McGuigan. That, or by the McGuigan. way, that was Kyle that was making fun of you, not Matthew. Yes. Uh, on bass guitar and uh, Tony McCarroll on drums originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Played their first gig on August 18th, 1981 at the Boardwalk Club in Manchester. Liam's older brother, Noel Gallagher, uh, joined the band as their fifth member uh, under the condition after that performance that he would be the band leader and the primary songwriter. So yeah. a little bit of balls there well, he, to just he, come in and be like, uh, you know, I'd really like to play with you guys, but I'm the leader and I write all the songs. Right. Now. He was a roadie for In Spiral Carpets at the yes. time and he was writing songs and he's like, well, I could do it too. But they immediately agreed to it. Yeah. Paul Arthur said uh, he had loads of stuff written already. Uh, when he walked in, we were a band making a racket with four tunes, and all of a sudden, we were we had loads of ideas. So, obviously, if you're having trouble writing songs, and a songwriter comes along and is like, here's my conditions, you take it. Yeah. In 1993, they signed an international contract with Sony. Uh, mm-hmm. They were becoming a little bit better known, and Sony licensed them back to an independent UK record label called Creation Records. Mm-hmm. Uh, their de- debut album, uh, Definitely Maybe, was released on the 29th of August, 1994, Entered the charts at number one within a week of its release. At the time, the fastest selling UK album. Indeed. Of all time. So, you know, uh, you like them or hate them, they sold a hell of a lot of albums. Commercially, they were doing pretty good at this point, but uh, personally, they were starting to have some real serious issues. They were going on tour to promote uh, Definitely Maybe, and uh, they were starting to have a lot of problems. Drugs, alcohol, personal conflict between the band members were starting to take place, and uh did you did you uh, uh, watch the newly released video of the concert from the Whiskey A Go Go? Uh, no, oh. I didn't. So I ma- assume it was terrible. Maybe one of the most famous disaster concerts of all time. They were playing at the Whiskey A Go Go in 1994. Oh, this uh, is the this must be the concert that I referenced, but I didn't yes. watch it. Okay. So recently, very recently, in fact, July of last year, somebody found a videotape, a house recording from right next to, I believe it's the lighting console oh boy. at the Whiskey A Go Go of the whole performance. This is a famously disastrous performance. Basically, Liam, uh, who was high on meth at the time, mm. as was the rest of the band, and we'll get back to that in just a second, he spent a large part of the show insulting the American audiences. Uh, and then he hit Noel on the head with a tambourine. Yeah. Uh, and it upset Noel so much that he, quote, quit. quit, unquote, the band, flew off to San Francisco instead of continuing the tour. Tim Abbott from Creation Records uh, had to track him down, flew him out to Las Vegas, where they had a couple of days, and persuaded him to rejoin the band. Nice, huh? I will try to remember to put this link to that video in the show notes if you want to go watch it. Yeah, it's, that'd be great. The sound is horrible because uh, it's an old it's VHS. It's not about the sound. Right? It is the funniest just watching him bang him on the head with that fucking tambourine. <laughs> There's also a great article written about this uh, from uh, Far Out Magazine, their online version from uh, September 2nd, 2020, titled The Worst Oasis Concert of All Time, colon, Crystal Meth at the Whiskey A Go-Go in 1994. <laughs> and according to this al- or according to this article, yes, they were all high on meth. And the reason they were high on meth was because they wanted someone to buy them cocaine and they accidentally bought the meth. And so they were just like, eh. And yeah, then we'll they, do it. Then they did meth. You know, as you do. As you do. Who hasn't been there where you send one of your minions out to buy you some cocaine and they come back with meth and you're like, oh, you idiot. Well, I guess we'll just have to do some meth before this show. Shit. For the first time ever. We'll have to do it. 
So uh, that incident uh, did leave a big bad taste in Noel's mouth. He wrote a song called Talk Tonight about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a bad song. So, so this this was the band's second album, as you as yes. you said, released in October 1995. And fans of Oasis, or even non-fans like myself, uh, knew that this was a fairly radical departure from their debut album, Definitely mm-hmm. Maybe. That album was a lot rockier. Songs were a bit more direct. This ha- song, or this album, has a lot of ballads, a lot of big choruses. Yes. Really trying to exploit the fact that they were playing to large crowds. So when I sat down, started listening to this record, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't like it when it first came out. I haven't really listened to it since that time, and I really didn't hold the band in very high regard. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to be an honest reviewer, and I wanted to attempt to go into the experience with a clean slate, an open mind, (laughs) what have you. Uh, Maybe I closed myself off to it for the wrong reasons. You know, Maybe I had missed something the first time around. Maybe. Because I was firmly entrenched in other music of the 90s that I really didn't give it its due. So I tried to listen to the songs fresh. And I can tell you that after several weeks of listening, that that experiment was a complete and colossal disaster. (laughs) I still don't like it. I'm so happy about this. (laughs) I still have the same hangups that I did in the 90s. I still find it lacks all the same qualities I thought it lacked back then. But there are other reasons. So... As I'm sure you know, Kyle, the Gallagher brothers are notorious assholes. Yes. They have been critical of everyone in the music industry, except themselves, naturally. I mean, they are from Manchester, and I believe people from Manchester are called Manchowderians. (laughs) From the- Manchesterarians, something like that. From the controversy surrounding Blur and Damien Albarn, which I'm sure we'll get to, to Jay-Z, to referring to Phil Collins as the Antichrist. Yes. Also, they are horrible to each other mm-hmm. and each other's wives. Mm-hmm. They're not great people when it comes to their fans. as They are remarkably selfish. Their fights were so bad that they would repeatedly quit the band on one another, canceling many gigs, leaving fans of the band yes. high and dry. If you want to be a fan of Oasis, that's cool. And because you are a fan... You should be able to see the concert you paid for, even if the guitarist and the vocalist brother are incredible babies and can't get along. <laughs> so part of me wants to look the other way at that kind of crap, you know, being awful to family, being awful to your bandmates, being awful to your fans. But it's hard to separate a really awful human being from the art that they create. For example, okay, let's take Woody Allen. Oh, yes. Oh, Recently in the news. I love some of his movies. Mm-hmm. Sleeper, Annie Hall, great movies. And mm-hmm. his 1975 comedy, Love and Death, is one of my favorite movies of all time. We know that he is a pretty awful human being. When I first started watching his movies, that stuff hadn't come to light yet. So I watched him, and I liked him. Now when one comes on, there is a gnawing in my brain that makes me take notice. That little voice is saying, yeah, it's funny, but think of the people he has caused pain by his behavior. Am I not rewarding that in some way by believing that his art should have value regardless of his perversity? Or Bill Cosby. Yes. His comedy special, Bill Cosby himself, was a program that I grew up on. Oh, me too. I watched year after year in the 80s, and I still could quote it today. But knowing what we know, knowing that while he was performing those jokes and talking about his idyllic life with his wife and family, he was secretly drugging women and assaulting them, that makes all of that fake. Yeah. The jokes are still funny but come with so much baggage that it isn't worth it. Lots of people say that you can't tie an artist's life to his work, that those two things have to be separate. But why? Life influences work, and your integrity as a person should be connected to what you make or how you perform. Back when I was growing up, there was a wall between artists and the public, or an athlete and the fans. Mm -hmm. The media didn't always know everything, so you didn't know how they behaved. But you do now. 
And I think you have to be responsible for it. Having said that, let me be perfectly clear with what I'm saying. I am not remotely suggesting that Liam Gallagher and Noel Gallagher are sexual abusers or that they did anything of the kind. I don't want hate mail. All I'm saying is that how you behave in public or what you say about other artists or how you suggest that you may be, quote, bigger or more important than the Beatles will have an influence on how your art is perceived. If you are going to come out and say to me that your music is as important as the Beatles stuff, then you better come at me with the goods, not the tripe that's on this record. (laughs) Uh, Just out of curiosity, uh, due to the transitive property, if the Beatles were bigger than Jesus and Oasis is bigger than the Beatles, does that mean that Oasis is bigger than the Beatles and Jesus combined? Combined. Wow. Yeah. that's, That's pretty big. It's like maybe two heads of the Trinity there. Oh, I think wow. they could be bigger than the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Whoa. Yeah, I know. It's pretty big. That would be a great concert, though. It would be, fr- it would uh, be fun. I feel the like. The Beatles, Oasis, and Jesus. Jesus? <laughs> That'd be a great concert. Not Jesus Jones, right? No. Jesus Christ. The Jesus. Okay, good. Uh, Jesus just, Jones kind of ran their course. I mean, I don't care for his bass licks, but his, <laughs> his lyrics are pretty good. <laughs> Anyway, let's go back to the music. Like let's I said, go back to the music. Released on October 2nd, 1995. Kyle, do you have the vitals for this uh, record? Besides the fact that I it sold a gajillion records? do. So obviously it was recorded uh, May to June 1995 at Rockfield Studios in Wales. Producer Owen Morris said, which this to me blew my mind, because I would think knowing the brothers, knowing everything about them, that this would have been just an absolutely catastrophically horrible time in a recording studio. But uh, Owen Morris said in a 2010 interview that, quote, the sessions were the best recording, or sorry, the best, easiest, least fraught, most happy creative time I've ever had in a recording studio. I believe people can feel and hear when music is dishonest and motivated by the wrong reasons. Morning Glory, for all its imperfections and flaws, is dripping with love and happiness. He must have been so high. He must have been messed up on meth. Medium length album, and I want I want to mention this because I'm going to circle back around to this in a little bit. Okay, uh, critics disliked the album when it first came out a lot. Uh, a lot of them said really horrible things about it, and since then it is now one of the highest regarded albums of the 1990s. Are you referring to this stuff here? I'm going to guess you have some of these quotes. Don't so you? it was at least to me and this listener's ear quite inexplicably a huge hit worldwide. Perhaps yes. struck at the right time. People may have uh, been growing tired of grunge and the general attitude that that style of music uh, seemed to foster. I don't really know. I know that in 2010, at the Brit Awards, they named this the best British album since 1980. Yes. Think about that for a second. Do you have any idea how many magical, life-changing albums you have to disregard? You have to throw out the entire Smith's catalog. Yes. You have to... Throw out almost every single Cure album. Yes. Every Depeche Mode mm-hmm. album. Yeah, every Tears and Fears album. Gone. Almost every Elvis Costello album. Hot garbage. Most of The Clash. Just terrible. I mean, seriously. <laughs> that statement alone <laughs> is the kind of shit statement that I would expect to be made by Oasis. Yes. Not about we're, Oasis. We're the best British album that's been made since 1980. Are you That's something that they me? would say. To me, something happened with music in the 1990s, right? And I think one of the reasons why this album was so successful... You're coming out of the 80s. You had really strong pop music in the 80s and really strong, uh, like, sort of hair metal rock bands, right? And that all kind of mashed together towards the end of the 80s and then split apart into three areas. So, number one, you had heavy metal, right? There were the heavy metal people. They were all, you know, it was like the hair metal got real heavy. It combined a lot of rock. It combined a lot of the hair metal stuff, but it got real heavy. You had grunge. 
that rose up out of those same ashes. You had bands, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all the Seattle Sound bands, and they kind of forged a completely new path. And then you had pop music that sort of went really poppy in the 90s. They had finally, the music industry had figured out that formula. And they were like, if you do A, B, C, D, and E, and then push it to a bunch of radio stations, it will become a pop hit and we can make money off of it. Mm. Not necessarily good, very memorable, very earwormish, but uh, not necessarily good. I think what happened is Oasis sort of fell in between all three of those. Fell in the cracks. That there sounds was, about right. There was enough rock here that it wasn't, it's not metal. It's not, you know, any of the metal stuff, but it's rocky enough that it appeased people who were like, oh, you remember The Rock from the 80s? It's not grungy, but it has a lot of that distorted overdriven guitar, guitar, overdriven noise that appeals to the people from the grunge movement. And it's also very poppy. Two of the songs on this album, Wonderwall and Champagne Supernova, I think, love them or hate them, they are absolutely iconic songs of the 1990s. They are iconic songs. They are iconic songs hate of the them, 1990s. But they are, oh, I, yeah. It, a lot of people so, hate them. But so boring. Exactly. It's just boring. That's why it did so well, though. Because it's boring? Because it's boring. It didn't challenge people. It didn't, nobody, everybody could put this album on and listen to it beginning to end and enjoy it and not be challenged. I know that that's crazy to say, but that's true. <laughs> that's really what this album was. I feel, I'm, I, it, I am challenged. I think by it. right now would be a good time to mention why I picked this album. Yes, please do. For that specific reason. To challenge me? No, because it's you a weird album a that fell between the cracks. <laughs> It is an album that is incredibly popular. Just to spout off some stats 22 here. million copies worldwide? Yes. That is uh, a stupid number. International weekly chart success uh, when it came out. Number one in Australia, Canada, uh, in Australia and Canada, Billboard European albums, Germany, Iceland, Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, UK. Number one in all of those countries. Number four on, in the US top 200. Number three in the US Cashbox album charts. Which was a, I'd never heard of that before. Cashbox. Yeah, it's like a music uh, magazine. Eight times platinum in Australia, which only means- Was that like five? 560,000 albums. Still pretty good though. Eight times platinum in Canada, which is 800,000 albums. Six times platinum in Denmark, which is 120,000 albums. Went platinum in France with 500, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, 588,000 albums. Six times platinum in Ireland with 90,000 albums. Platinum in Italy with 100,000 albums. Platinum in Japan with 200,000 albums. Platinum in New Zealand with 15,000 albums. Come on, New Zealand. Four times platinum in the U.S. with four million albums sold. <laughs> Six times platinum in Europe with six million albums sold. And 15 times platinum in the U.K. with 4,700,000 albums sold. The fifth best-selling album in the U.K. of all time and the biggest-selling album of the U.K. in the 1990s. It's it just- is the 58th highest-selling album of all time as of 2020 <laughs> with acclaimed sales of 22 million units it's ridiculous that is insane and i know someone's out there listening going you know this is one of my favorite records Mm -hmm. all i need for you to do is just explain to me why and if it's as simple as well it it just hit hit me in a part of my life where it was really important that's absolutely possible and fine i'll give you that if someone can argue with me the musical merits of this record then then we'll then we'll really have a conversation because it just, it is one of, it's so boring. I know somebody who uh, danced with their high school girlfriend to Champagne Supernova, because at the time they were in high school in the late 90s, proposed while that song was playing. Uh, it was their wedding song. 
uh, and I believe it was their uh, their. It's been their anniversary song since then, so they always like dance to it and stuff. Okay, this is them dancing. Good dance for champagne supernova. I hope somebody gets to see this video. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you like those? <laughs> oh, oh, oh my god. <laughs> Uh, yeah so it's crazy it is it is an incredibly popular album and um while again this is not one of my favorite albums of all time it's not some like you know we were joking around earlier before we started recording and i said this is not going to be like this was a turning point in my childhood in music or it's nothing like that i'm still giving you the evil eye you're still giving me i still think it's your secretly your favorite album of all time i think that it is a good album I think that it is a, like I said before, it is a thoughtless album. You Good. can put it on. We were cray. You can put it on and listen to it from beginning to end and not have to think about it. And a case What's sometimes, to think about? Sometimes that's exactly what I want. All right. All right. So, All right. and again, you know, I realize that we're going to, we're going to disagree on this one and this is not going to be one where I'm going to like. That's okay. Suddenly say something and you're going to be like, oh my God, I never thought of that. You're I never, right. You're right. It's wonderful. Well, first of all, like I keep saying how boring it is. Yes. Because it's mixed incredibly bad. Oh, yeah. Let's get to that. Because there are two major flaws with this album. Just two, Two, huh? Well, two that I want to point out. Okay. So number one, uh, this is what I call a casualty of the loudness wars. So uh, in case you don't know what the loudness wars are, uh, there was a trend that, depending upon who you ask, it started as early as the 1940s. Really, it started to take hold in the early 1980s. The idea is that you can increase the loudness of a song of music by making it making the waveform fuller. Uh, I guess that's the easiest way to describe it. And I know a lot of people are not going to understand that. There's tons of articles about this. If you're yeah. really interested, go read on it. Uh, but in the early 1940s, when they were mastering seven-inch records, you know, they played them in jukeboxes and they were mastered very loudly to overcome the loudness of rooms that jukeboxes were in. So, you know, it sort of made sense there. But the maximum peak level of sound on an analog recording like that was limited by the equipment that they had at the time. All the way up through the cassette era, it was basically limited by the hardware because, you know, you can only get so much in there. Um, But along comes uh, CDs uh, in the early 80s and and on into the 90s. And they had this huge uh, uh, breadth of space that they could go to. And suddenly songs started to get much, much, much louder. And, you know, people were competing with all different types of media on the radio, on MTV, personal listening between loud cars. And it became a, a almost a competition, a war, if you will, if you will, to try to be louder than everyone else so that your sound came out on top. And because of that, there are a whole bunch of albums from the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s even where they just sound like shit. They sound like absolute shit because there's no dynamics to them. If you look at the waveforms on the CD for this album, instead of looking like a regular waveform where there's a lot of up and downs, mm-hmm. it's a box. Yeah, it's the there's block. There's usually a little bit of waveform at the beginning, and then there's a giant box with a couple little dips in it, and then there's a little bit of waveform at the end when it fades in and out. Or I'm sorry, when it fades out at the end. That's it. That's all you see. It is horrible and that's why i say that it's a casualty it's just clangy and just noisy and yes. just there, nothing defined it's all it, just mashed randy, together randy is showing us the hand signal for compressed that's yeah. uh, i believe that's the hand signal right uh <laughs> when i started is, listening to compressed. it i just i like was on a walk and i'm like 
And something wrong with my AirPods right now. What's really funny too is this was just so. So the version that you listen to on, say, Spotify or iTunes today is probably the remastered version, which they've actually corrected a lot of it. Yeah. It still sounds super compressed and super horrible. Horrible. And to me, that is sad because I think this album would sound a ton better had it been mastered correctly. Hmm. In case there's anybody who's a real nerd out there. Nerds. uh, What's the story? Morning Glory has an RMS level, which stands for root mean square, uh, which is the average voltage of an audio (laughs) signal of negative eight decibels relative to full scale, which is apparently very high. I don't know anything about it. So (laughs) whatever. But uh, yeah, that's the first thing. Do you have anything you want to say about that? No, no. You covered it. The second thing about this album, and I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this one. I'm writing Uh, writing my letter right now. Dear Kyle. I think almost every song on here could be one minute shorter, and it would be a better song. Yeah, at least. I think you could could cut, if if you've got a good editor in there. you could cut three fucking minutes off (laughs) Champagne Supernova and be fine. Oh, why not just cut seven minutes out of it? Oh, boy. Oh, sorry. No, but really, (laughs) I do think that almost every song on here, had it been tighter edited, had the lyrics been edited down a little bit, you could have gotten a better song out of it, and it would have been a better sounding song and a better flowing song. I I would tend to agree with that. And yes. I I think like honestly, when you started talking about how much you hate this album, yeah, I think that's the number one thing for you. You might not know that yet, but I feel like that's the number one thing for you because you're so trying to make me self aware. I am, uh, because you you have a a background with English literature. You've been an, a video editor for many years. Yeah. You're good at editing. What you do is you go in and you take out pieces that don't need to be there to make something more coherent. They didn't do that with this album. No, they did not. <laughs> and I think that that deeply offends you on some level. On on many levels, it does. And because of that, I think that that's, that's why, because you were saying the other day, I don't know why I really hate this album. Yeah, there's a lot of things that col- <laughs> that, that color this experience. I'm, I, I'm sure that's part of it. I You're think probably that's part right. of it. And it's just, even on like a subconscious level, you just constantly feel that like, oh, this is just poorly edited. Oh, yeah, why man. didn't they stop doing this? Stop doing it. I, I agree with you. I'm excited to get to the track by track. But what about the cover art? The cover. The title of this album was inspired by Noel's friend, Melissa Lim, uh, who used to answer the phone with the phrase, what's the story, Morning Glory? Which itself is derived from a line from Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, the cover is a picture of two men passing each other on Berwick Street in London. The two men are London DJ uh, Sean Rowley and album sleeve desire uh, Brian Cannon, whose back is the who's the one with his back to the camera. The album's producer Owen Morris can be seen in the background on the left, holding the album's master tape in front of his face. Mm-hmm. As uh, you do. And the location on uh, Berwick Street was chosen because uh, it's a popular location for record shops. Yeah, it was. It was in the nineties. Yeah. The cover cost 25,000 pounds to produce. Brian Cannon, according to his yes. biography, he is well known for his grandiose, ridiculously time-consuming photo shoots. Yes, he is. Fits in so well with this band. Right? Uh, he runs a studio called Microdot that's still operating today. Uh, he has done a ton of work, uh, including the cover for uh, Definitely Maybe and Be Here Now and uh, obviously What's the Story Morning Glory for Oasis. Uh, he's also worked with bands like Ash, Groove Armada, the Sex Pistols, Suede, Super Furry Animals, the Beta Band, who, uh, and he was actually the manager for the Beta Band for eight years. Wow. So uh, there you go. That's the cover. That is the cover art. We are going to step away, take a short break right now. We'll be right back. Kyle. Yes. Have you ever uh, felt like you wanted to try something new? 
like oh boy. like cooking or basket weaving. Yes. But you didn't know where to start. Mm, that's like I a, do usually have trouble starting. Like you needed a roadmap or a guide. Yeah. A lot of people feel like that about jazz music. Ah. So, you know, they don't know where to start. It seems too complex. Do I start with a fusion or big band or the legends? I, I know I feel like that personally. It is a very deep and, and rich subject with a, a lot of places you could start. All right. So, well, we here at Audio Judo have something mm-hmm. to fix all that. And with the help of our guest host and jazz spirit guide, Chris, we're going to help uh, try and help you navigate the treacherous waters of listening to jazz. Uh, we will be premiering a new spin-off podcast series called Audio Judo Does Jazz in late April. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be fun, interesting. I'm looking forward to it. We're also recording that bad boy exclusively with the new podcaster kit from AKG. Yes. Chris doesn't have any experience in podcasting, so we wanted to make it as easy as possible for the person who doesn't have studio equipment or editing headphones or anything like that. So this podcaster's kit is perfect. He gets a cool mic, set of headphones, software, bingo, blango, he's podcast. Yeah. All that means is more competition for us, so we have to bring our A-game because everyone is going to be podcasting soon. The only thing I didn't like about it is uh, since Chris is using it, I can't steal it. No, you can't steal it. That's unfortunate. So, uh... Well, it's a shame we had to send it to Chris. Yeah. He's, he's going to make the most of it. Yeah. Like I said, look for that series in late April. Yes. Because we are super jazzed about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dad wordplay. Hello. Oh, we're back. We're back. And also, the first song on this album is called Hello. Oh, hello. Hello. Not oh, hello. No, not oh, hello. Just hello. Just hello. Very uh, interesting song. It's got this real quiet guitar intro, uh, and then it's interrupted by this weird echoey guitar that sort of uh, that leads into the song. It's very telling. Yes, it starts out. Yeah, like you said, it's the very recognizable rhythmic strumming from Noel Gallagher, and yeah. I say recognizable at least it is to me because I feel like he does it on most of mm-hmm. the songs on this album. It's a very it's very simple strumming. And the rhythm is almost always the same. Uh, and then like, the whole band punches in after that. And it's yeah. it's an okay rock song after that. To me, there's nothing noteworthy or innovative or original. And I'm not saying that there has to be. But for an opener, it just kind of it just kind of lays there. That is definitely something that you hear over and over on this album. They definitely were heavily influenced, let's say, oh, we're by gonna, a lot of other al- we're gonna uh, artists. We're going to talk about uh, that. Here's a, here's a clip of uh, Hello. Liam Gallagher's voice is just so grating to me. <laughs> and man, I really wish uh, I didn't have as much negative stuff to say about this record as I do, because I'm sure there are some o- Oasis fans out there getting really pissed off. But this is my opinion. His voice, it's just not pleasant. So <laughs> first of all, what I think we find when we listen to the album in context and as a whole, and maybe that's part of my issue, maybe it's better in small doses, but we find is that his vocal melodies are very similar to one another, song to song. Mm-hmm. Uh, his voice is very flat, very nasal. Yes, it is. And there's absolutely worse singers 
in the industry who are popular, like Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, even Robert Smith from The Cure. However, their voices work well with the style and the music, and Liam's just feels like there's nothing behind it. There's It just doesn't work. <laughs> in in addition, we get the first time uh, that we have some, uh, you know, uh, plagiarism issues for That's Oasis. That's true. Uh, uh, so Gary but it won't Glitter, be the last time. <laughs> good old Gary Glitter is uh, credited on this song because uh, they were heavily influenced by a song of uh, his called Hello, Hello, I'm Back Again. Uh, that is Gary, Gl- Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band. Noel uh, said he, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, n- noted pedophile, yeah, <laughs> Gary Noel, Glitter. Noel said he put it on there because he thought it would be funny. <laughs> as funny as it might be, well, you didn't credit him or ask permission to use it. Until later. So now you have to pay you legally. Gary Glitter royalties for the rest of all time. Apparently Gary Glitter has made like a million pounds a year off of royalties. I wonder if he knows that from prison. Uh, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm imagining it's just you know going what? to his legal bills. Here, uh, why don't we let the, the people decide? Uh, here's a little clip from uh, Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band. Uh, hello, hello, I'm back again. That'll come back in a minute here. It definitely comes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier with the, uh, you know, can you separate the artist from the art with Gary Glitter? Because some of those songs by uh, Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band are are, are pop hits. No, you that cannot. Are, that are absolute, you know, fucking sticky brain music. Oh, I know. But uh, he's also a convicted pedophile. So... People have speculated that Noel meant the part of it's good to be back as a nod to his fans saying it's good to be back with our second album. Mm -hmm. I think that is giving him more credit than he deserves for being witty. (laughs) And I'm going to say this uh, again to you, Kyle, and to the fans out there and any fans of Oasis that may still be listening. I'm trying really hard to find the positives here. (laughs) And there will be some. Like, for instance, I really like his guitar uh, tone on this first song. It's kind of overdriven, a little distorted, but it's pretty nice. I don't hate it. I would love somebody to get a hold of the master tapes from this and build a really like high dynamic range version of this album. I don't know if we reach anybody that has that capability. Somebody get it for us. But do it. That'd be great. Do it. Just roll with it. Oh, you did it again. Or did it again. Puns are fun. Uh, this, I guess that's not a pun, but still. This isn't really, it's not really a bad song when I listen to it a few times. Little bouncy and fun. Yeah. Has some Beatlesque harmonies going on in there. Predictable and plain, but it's not all bad. Yeah, it's a song about being true to yourself. Uh, Noel had this to say about the song. It's just great, mindless, senseless pop music. Cigarettes and alcohol made you want to go out and nick stuff. This makes you want to take it all back. Yeah, it's a good one. It's about fuck all. I like the sentiments of that song. It's just a simple rock and roll tune. And it's sold all right. Aside here, notice what he's focusing on. Mm -hmm. It's just a typical Oasis thing. Shut up, moaning, and effing get on with it. It's the same sentiments as in nearly every song we do. You know, supersonic, you've got to be yourself. Starts to get a little boring, but those are the lyrics I feel comfortable with. So, I'm going to say I won't be doing much lyrical analysis on this episode, Mm -hmm. other than a couple tunes that uh, warrant it. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, There just isn't a lot to uncover. More just rhyming and finding words that sound all right together. And that's perfectly okay. 
Uh, this song was the subject of the great Battle of Britpop. The Battle of the Britpop. Of 1995. Matthew, you need to pronounce it correctly in the, in the Queen's English. Uh, when Oasis so, and, and Blur were in the middle of a chart war. Ah, thank you, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a completely made-up bullshit chart war that they used to sell thousands of singles. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of singles. Uh, this song, Roll With It, reached number two. Only beaten by Blur's uh, number one song. Country House. Yes, Country House. The yeah, the uh, releases were spurned on by media attacks by members of both bands, naturally. Mm-hmm. And it was becoming a class war, as Oasis was considered the working class band, and no. Blur was considered the middle class band. No. Blur's single sold 274,000 copies, and Oasis sold 216,000 copies of this. Either way, sounds like they both won. Right. And in true Noel Gallagher fashion, he has called both of the songs... Shit. <laughs> I liked his quote. Uh, he said, uh, Roll With It has never been played by anybody since the band split up. Uh, he also said that a chart race between Oasis's, excuse me, Oasis, Oasis's? Oasis's Oasis I. Oasis of peoples. Oasis's Sis. cigarettes and alcohol and Blur's girls and boys would have been a greater merit. I agree. That would have been a great So w- one more thing, as cheeky as they are, some of it could be intentionally funny. Mm-hmm. So when they appeared on Tops of the Pops in August of 1995 to promote this song, they were supposed to mime their performances, which they did. Yes. But they switched roles. Mm-hmm. Liam pretended to play guitar. Noel pretended to sing and play tambourine. And it's actually a ridiculous looking performance, as it should be when you have to mime your musical performance. Right. It's like watching American Bandstand back in the day. Like, this is stupid. Why yeah. not just plug them in? Right. Who cares? But what if they said a swear or they screwed up? <laughs> and then the American public would be very <laughs> upset, Matthew. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Dick Clark would have passed out. No! So, and this song also marks the first track with new but temporary drummer, yes. Alan White. And you can hear it for sure, because they, you know, sacked the last guy. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics uh, at the end of this, uh, I think I've got a feeling I've lost inside. Take me away. Uh, it's repeated 12 times at the end of this song. It's either a reference to drugs, taking you away from, you know, the normalcy of life, uh, or the idea of suicide, taking you away from life. There's your editing again. Yeah. Here's a here's a quick little sample of this song. So much noise right? in there. There's that. Uh, there's a, 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 a that uh, Gary Glitter cough I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I actually think the cough is an interesting period on the end of this song. It's sort of a dot that just says like, well, maybe everything does keep going. Who knows? Probably they probably played it for six and a half hours. That's probably true, and it only felt like three minutes to them. Strung so. out forever. You just you just kept playing it. How long we play that song? Eight minutes. Uh, actually, no, you've been playing for four hours. Yeah. I didn't feel like it. But good news, Matthew. And now here's Wonderwall. (laughs) If I could get past how much his voice bothers me here, it's actually not a bad song. (laughs) Uh, Producer Owen Morris describes Liam's vocals on this song as rasping blues like he smoked a hundred cigarettes. What? 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 It's it's also Liam singing on this one, which is interesting. Uh, (laughs) However, you know, as I say that, that it's not that bad of a song. 
is actually a pretty good song. However, w- would I say that it is, quote, the greatest British song ever written, as re- <laughs> listeners of Radio X said as late as 2016? Nope. Would I say that it is the second greatest song of all time, as readers of Q Magazine said in 2006? Nope. Come on, people. Uh, you know, it is a good. Is it a good song? Yes, it could be. But all that. Let's be realistic here. You know, it's the, fucking Oasis. All right. The Edge, uh, U2's guitarist. Oh, this is the song uh, I wish I had written. Did say it's one of the songs he wished he'd written. Shut up. <laughs> Uh, what does that even mean? <laughs> uh, you did, know what? Did you not have enough money, here's, Edge? Here's a little clip. Judge for yourself if you haven't heard it before. Today was gonna be the day, but they'll never throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you're not to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. you i know i'm sorry (laughs) short clip there uh honestly this is a song this is the song why i picked this album it is a song that is so iconic of the mid 90s i i you know good bad who gives a shit it is such a song that is such a time and place the second i hear this song i'm like "Uh, it's 1996 you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's the mid-90s. The You know, it just, it is stuck there. Oh, you could spot date this oh, yeah, pretty absolutely. easily. That big, you know, like I said, that big set, it charted very well as it reached number eight in the States, yeah. number five in Canada, mm-hmm. number two in the UK, sold extremely well for them, which seems to be what they're concerned with, going quadruple platinum as a single in the UK, gold in the States, also nominated for two Grammy Awards mm-hmm. for Best Rock Song and Best Rock Vocal Performance by a Group or Duo. Right. They lost both. Now, in their defense, it probably should have won. It was up against Stupid Girl by Garbage, which is more alternative, not so much rock. Too Much by Dave Matthews, which I love, but also doesn't fit in that genre. Sixth Avenue Heartbreak by The Wallflowers, which is closer to what you're going for, but Wonderwall's probably a better song than that. And the eventual winner, Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman, which isn't a rock song at all. No. But that's what won. So, I... If these were my f- nominees, I would have given the award to Oasis, as hmm. much as it pains me to say. You got to <laughs> just, you know, I would have had to. If those are the nominees, I trust me, I could have found a better rock song in 1996 <laughs> to nominate, but it's okay. The song was originally called yes. Wishing Stone and was written about Noel's then-girlfriend and later wife, Meg Matthews. And then after they divorced in 2001, he ignored that he had ever said that and claimed that it was about no one in particular and the media just jumps on stuff, which is just great. <laughs> do you know where the title Wonderwall came from? I do. It's a 1968 film called Wonderwall from Psychedelia to Surrealism. That's George Harrison's yes. soundtrack. And it is a wonderful soundtrack called Wonderwall Music. Uh, if you get a chance to go listen to that, please do. That's a good soundtrack. And like Kyle talked about at the opening, this song was mixed using brick walling, well, where almost every level in the song is redlined and then compressed down to make it sound full and loud. And loudness wars. Yeah. Bass is played on the song by Noel Gallagher, much to the dismay of his brother, who quipped that, quote, this isn't Oasis, right? And that arrogance and need to control stuff rears its head again. Yep. Like, you're in a band, dude. Let the bass player play. You weren't even letting the bass player play 
bass parts. You were making them just play big fat bottom notes all the time. What the hell difference does it make? Ooh, one last uh, bit about this song. Noel Gallagher has repeatedly said that he believes Green Day's Boulevard of Broken Dreams is a direct ripoff of this oh. song. He said this. Interesting. If you listen, you'll find it exact. You find it is exactly the same arrangement as Wonderwall. They should have the decency to wait until I'm dead before stealing my songs. I <laughs> at least pay the people I steal from. <laughs> you know, when you're forced to, you do. Yeah, I, I AB'd these two, those two songs. Mm-hmm. Didn't hear it. Other than a couple of chords being similar, I didn't hear anything remotely the same. And I don't think anyone else did because, unlike Noel, who has been sued several times. This one has never been near a courtroom. Yeah. For anyone else listening out there, my son uh, sent me a text when I was preparing for this saying, if you really want to hear what Wonderwall should have sounded like, listen to 21 Pilots' The Hype off their most recent record, which sounds a lot like Wonderwall. And I'm like, oh, that's much closer to what Wonderwall (laughs) sounds like than Boulevard of Broken Dreams. But anyway, that's, uh, yeah. My favorite fact to close out this song is that uh, both Liam and Noel hate this song. There are so many quotes about them just saying, no, it's shit. We hate it. We don't want to play it ever again. But you get a hit this big, you have to play you it have every to single play concert. It. You know what they shouldn't do, though? They shouldn't look back in anger. Yes. Don't look back in anger. Yeah, Thanks I won't. the setup. <laughs> this is a fourth single from the record. Mm-hmm. First one to top the UK chart. Yes. I actually really like this song. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, this this was also the this first single of theirs to feature Noel on lead vocals. Mm-hmm. And if you asked me who sang this song, I would have absolutely said it was Liam. There's very little discernible difference between the two brothers' voices. Now, knowing that he sang it, it's easy to hear the differences, but on a first pass, I wouldn't be able to tell you that they changed yeah. vocalists there. Noel Gallagher admits that he was under the influence of, quote, substances, end quote, when he wrote this song, and he doesn't know what the lyrics are about. But chances are the title and probably some of the inspiration for this song, came from David Bowie's Look Back in Anger, uh, which is a pretty good song if you've never heard it. Yep. Uh, Here's a little clip of uh, Don't Look Back in Anger. Sally. Nobody. No, Noel has said, I don't actually know anybody called Sally. It's just a word that fit, you know? Might as well throw a girl's name in there. Just got to guarantee somebody a shag off a bird called Sally, hasn't it? <laughs> I was going to put that quote into it. I, I decided to leave it out. Any quote that has the word shag in it, I've got to throw in there. Uh, Noel states that it is a cross between All the Young Dudes by Bowie yeah. and something, quote, the Beatles might have done. Yes. Well, that line right there <laughs> is such a bullshit statement. Are you comparing yourself to the Beatles what? or suggesting, I know, suggesting <laughs> that your material is equal to or good enough for the Beatles? It's comments like that is not as innocuous as they may seem that really piss me off about this band. Add in the fact that he borrowed lyrical <laughs> ideas from what are supposedly John Lennon's memoir tapes that have been stolen from the Dakota Hotel, and the fact that the piano part at the beginning strongly resembles Imagine, 
And some of the other melodic lines, quote, borrow from Watching the Wheels by John Lennon. And you start to wonder why exactly, what are they trying to do here? Are they trying to be the Beatles? Be a Beatles cover band? Is it just a homage? And if it is, then give credit where credit belongs. To his credit, (laughs) Noel said in an interview, uh, in the case of Don't Look Back in Anger, I mean, the opening piano riffs, imagine, 50% of it's put in there to wind people up, and the other 50% is saying, look, this is how songs like Don't Look Back in Anger come about, because they're inspired by songs like Imagine. And no matter what people might think, there will be some 13-year-old kid out there who's read an interview and thinks, imagine, I've never heard that song, and he might go and buy the album. Uh Uh-huh. Now, do I believe that? Hell no. No? No, of course not. You can't say, well, I'm ripping off your stuff, but it might sell you some albums. No, that's bullshit. (laughs) I think the Lennon Estate's doing just fine on its own. I think they're fine. Uh, Hey, now. (laughs) Oh, Unless not yet. You, oh, you've, oh, you've got more on Yeah, this. yeah, yeah. So th- oh. this song also gained uh, some renewed popularity in 2017 when it was performed by Chris Martin from Coldplay and Ariana Grande after the Manchester Arena bombing where 20 people, uh, 22 yes. people lost their lives. Uh, before that tribute concert, it was sung spontaneously by a crowd outside the city center during a moment of silence for the victims. So it has some special meaning. Obviously, they're from Manchester. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, important song to them. I get it. I get it. I'm not saying it's a bad song, and I really can't hate this song. It's it's pretty good. I just hate how he constructed it, using all these Lennon bits and crutches and fallbacks. Um, also, if you are interested, there is a fantastic cover of this song by Tori Amos. It's oh, really, yeah. really good. Hey, now. Hey, now. It's another, Sorry, hey, now. Hey, now. You get it pronounced that way. It's got an exclamation mark. It's hey, now. This is another uh, John Lennon sounding song. Uh, take a listen to this. Hey, you think that song's about doing drugs, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> this and most of the album. Taking some psychedelics, maybe? I don't know. Apparently, it is about the uh, the band, according to Noel. He says the band has changed a lot and has a different vibe to it. Interesting that he would refer to them as a band, seeing as though he had just fired the drummer mm-hmm. and replaced him, and was playing the bass parts for a record when you have a bass player in the room with you. So, according to the site that I... I went to, uh, it continues the motifs of What's the Story, Morning Glory by referencing Lennon-esque psychedelia lyrically and escaping life with drug use to the comfort of introversion. I didn't quite get that. Huh. Usually pretty good at interpreting lyrics uh, and getting an understanding, but I didn't see any psychedelia in the lyrics, so I'm kind of uh, I'm kind it, of confused. It's definitely, I don't know, I can kind of see, hmm, how do I want to compare this here? Uh, a lot of the um, Lennon style, like, I guess you'd call them 
story songs where he starts telling the story about like, you know, he starts telling a story like, you know, I was doing this and then this other thing happened and then blah, 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 blah. A lot of those style songs, I can kind of see that, that same story narrative, but I don't think that it's, I don't know. What dis, what, what, like psychedelia? Yeah, that's the trick there is I don't feel like this is psychedelia influenced. I think it is definitely John Lennon influenced. Oh, 100%. Yes. Uh, but I don't think that it's any psychedelia influenced. No, I uh, I disagree. I mean, I agree with you. You agree. With yes. Uh, Untitled. Yes. The Swamp Song. Sometimes, sometimes called the Swamp Song. Excer- ep- excerpt part one. Excerpt part one. It's just that. Yeah. 44 second piece of a song called the Swamp Song that they recorded with Paul Weller. Best part about this is Paul Weller playing that harmonica, man. It's a really good harmonica. Uh, and this is a very, um, it's very bluesy. And it's kind of an interesting little excerpt here in yeah. the middle in the middle of the album. I don't know why it's here. Appeared on a it appeared as a B side to Wonderwall when it was released as a single. Hmm. Uh, and there's a part two later on this record as well. I did not get a clip from this one specifically because it's so short. Yeah, I didn't want to play the whole thing for fear of uh, copyright infringement. That's that's. Fair. I don't think it's a problem, honestly. But uh, I didn't want to just put the whole thing here and, and even risk it. So please go take a listen to this. Uh, it is a, a, a very interesting short track. Some might say that some, the next song is uh, some might say. Some might say that. This single was, the single version of this was Oasis's, Oasis, 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 first number one on the UK single charts. Another one clearly copied uh, from uh, another, not copied, heavily influenced <laughs> By a, a, a song, another song called Fuzzy by Grant Lee Buffalo. Uh-huh. Uh, and I do not have a clip of that, but I will put a link in the show notes to go listen to that if you are interested. You will definitely hear it, especially here's the opening to Some Might Say, and you will definitely be able to hear that in some of the Grant Lee Buffalo song, Fuzzy. <laughs> Candy pecan Shinerbach feels like it punched me in the face. <laughs> oh, I actually good over here. Actually, really like this song. It's a pretty good song, probably because I like Grantley Buffalo. <laughs> I would say this is the one song on this record that I actually gravitated to and uh, would listen to more often. It's written actually pretty well. Has some actual good lyrics that make sense. Uh, some might say they don't believe in heaven. Go and tell it to the man who lives in hell. Some might say you get what you've given. If you don't get yours, I won't get mine as well. Hmm. That's not horrible. Yeah. It is loud, though. Yes. Again, more compression issues. And this is the last uh, song that was recorded with original drummer Tony McCarroll before he was fired. Um, I like the guitar solo. Very yeah. nice. My Very only complaint. Nice guitar solo. My only complaint. And you you hit the nail on the head. The ride out lasts too damn long. Yes. Yeah. Again, if this was a minute shorter, great song. As it is, pretty good song. Yeah. One other thing. Touch mm-hmm. less reverb on those vocals would be great, too. Yes. Just super saturated, like so effecty. It's like, come on. So uh, this also kind of holds the uh, interesting title of 
Oasis performed this song on two episodes of Top of the Pops. The first time being McCarroll's final performance with the band ever, and the second being White's first performance with the band ever. Ah. Uh, It's also the 31st biggest selling single of 1995 in the UK. It has sold over 458,000 copies as of April 2015. What? Yeah. Interesting that this is the song that has sold that many copies. Okay. But whatever. I cast no shadows. Hmm. Pretty good uh, classic example of the Britpop sound. Yes. Do you hear what I'm saying about vocal delivery in this? Uh, 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 up and down, up and down, up yeah. and down. Very similar. There's not enough variation to keep it interesting for me. Mm-hmm. It's very predictable. So this song, I'm sure as you know, was written as a homage yes. to the lead singer of the Britpop band, The Verve. Yes. Uh, they were friends, uh, Richard Ashcroft. Uh, he was going through a difficult period, and he subsequently quit the Verb shortly after hearing the song, <laughs> but would eventually rejoin them and record their biggest hit, Bittersweet Symphony. Yes. That song would, of course, have its own tribulations uh, when they neglected to credit the Rolling Stones for the main riff, mm-hmm. causing the Verve to lose the rights to any and all royalties from that song. Which destroyed the band. Yeah, which is kind of a huge bummer, too, because it's a good song. I like Bittersweet Symphony. It also goes on too long. Yeah, well, true. But but hey, at least Noel Gallagher wrote a song for you. Right? Uh, I even think this song sounds like a lot of the Verve's earlier work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, t- take, a, take a quick little listen here. He walks along the open road of love and life, surviving if he can. a song about songwriters mm, kind of a song about selling your soul to the devil to get fame and fortune yeah that too just feel uh yeah but you know she's electric no she is electric <laughs> and you know what <laughs> do you have more on that cast? No. no shadow i was phased out of reality okay. there for a second i lose you for a second thank you pecan flavored beer you said punched in the face i did Woo, that she, beer she's electric she's electric well hello there beatles cover band right uh it's a maybe i want to fuck you but i kind of like your family song i'd have that in there right he's not hiding it not masking it chord progression in the song is very good and why wouldn't it be because right. you took it from the Beatles. Right? It really does sound just like a Beatles song. The harmony at the end, equally good. Mm-hmm. Why not? It's essentially Get By With A Little Help From My Friends by <laughs> The Beatles. What was the name of that band? The Beatles. That's it. Ooh. Uh, not a bad track, but uh, I don't know if I can really say that it's a good track either because it's a song by The Beatles. <laughs> Lyrically, it's about a guy who loves this girl and he sings about all the other people in her family who are kooky. Yes. Including her sister, who he clearly also had a relationship with, uh, judging by the blister on her hand. And at the end of the song, it turns out uh, his girl's pregnant, but not by him. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise. I don't have uh, much more to say about the, that yeah. sound, other than it has a very different sound than the rest of the record. It's certainly brighter, cheerier, Yeah, mixed I, a little cleaner. Eh. I kind of feel like this one might have been a, a holdover from an earlier album. It's definitely a song. Yeah. <laughs> Morning Glory. 
just your run-of-the-mill song about snorting cocaine to start your day off, quote, right. the right way, as a way to make your life a little more tolerable. I do kind of love the helicopter opening to this song, though, and then it just busts into that loud guitar solo. Yeah. It sounds like this. song does that sound like to you mm. does it not sound like the one i love by rem it does a lot holy <laughs> shit <laughs> oh my god yeah when i heard it i'm like huh uh, huh. I never put that together before. Oh, not not only is that the only grifting that, that they do, he also steals the line, Tomorrow Never Knows, in the lyrics by, you guessed it, the Beatles. <laughs> Are you saying that Oasis was influenced by the Beatles? Influenced. Huh. Yeah, Heavily that's, uh, influenced? That's the word I'd be looking for. Uh, <laughs> how much do you know about Morning Glories, Matthew? The flower? Morning Glory is the common name for over a thousand species of flowering plants from the family Convolvulaceae. Ah, yes. I guarantee I pronounced that incorrectly. But also, but also, but. in the 1800s, morning glory was a horse that performed well in the morning practice, but did poorly during the race. And oh. also, in the 50s, morning glory meant a habitual drug user's first hit in the morning. Really? And also, there's more. Morning Glory means morning wood. It's a self-fuck song, so you can jerk <laughs> off after you wake up. After you've done the cocaine? After you've done the cocaine. Honestly, I think that the uh, the, the drug usage uh, reference there is probably the correct one for this song. It's a They're referring to waking up and just being miserable and not wanting to get out of bed until you do a little bit of coke, and then, hey- Snort. Surprise, I'm wide awake and I want to get out of bed. Right. He's declared that this is a cynical song about drugs. Yes. When I listen to it, read through the lyrics, I fail to see the cynicism. From what I can tell, he is celebrating it, almost reveling in it. Yes. And that's fine if you want to feel that way. There are plenty of songs in rock and roll that celebrate drugs and the hedonistic lifestyle that you are taking in. But Indeed. just fucking own it and say, you know what? I liked it. I sure do love drugs. Right? Snort. <laughs> And morning wood. Yeah. And I, I do love a mo good morning wood. <laughs> a maple or maybe a pine. Oh, yeah. Oh, Ooh. solid uh, pine. The Swamp Song excerpt two, also called Untitled sometimes. Another 30 second clip uh, from the Swamp Song that was right? released as a B-side to Wonderwall. Sounds like they took the Swamp Song and put a weird water filter over the top of it. Yeah. Uh, there's some funky waves splashing in the background, which lead directly into the last song on this album, Champagne Supernova. Where 
were you, Kyle, while we were getting high? Mm, probably somewhere else. This is a song that really grinds my gears, so oh. to speak. When, when it came out as a single in the States in 1996, it just exploded up the charts, mm-hmm. eventually topping the modern rock charts. And I was like, really? This is what good rock and roll is right now? This? And it was disheartening. And I still don't like it. And after all this research and time spent listening to this record, I have come to the conclusion that it isn't that bad until right now. (laughs) I cannot stand this song. (laughs) Although it does feature a guest performance by Paul Weller from The Jam. Yes, it does. And And he's good. It's a very good guitar solo. And uh, here's a clip of that guitar solo, in fact. Check out the jam if you get a chance. Paul Weller's awesome. Oh, yeah. He's really good. Call it the juvenile, nonsensical lyrics or the fact that it drones on and on for seven and a half torturous minutes. Whatever it is, (laughs) I hate it. And one thing that has always colored this for me was the 1996 MTV Music Awards when they performed it. Ah. Liam kept flipping his brother off during the performance and at the end spit his beer on the stage and stormed off. Rock and roll! Yeah. No. no. Just a petulant child trying to become rock and roll, and you just look like a dick, dude. <laughs> As one person on the message board said, though, and I re- when I read, uh, read this, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It's a plantain supernova in the <laughs> sky. I'm like, yes, now I can listen to it. That's good. <laughs> go, go on, Kyle. Oh, I was going to say uh, one fantastic thing did come out of this, though. There is an actual supernova named the Champagne Supernova. It is Supernova SN200, I'm sorry, 2003 FG. How much do you know about supernovas, Matthew? I know quite a bit. Because this- Took astronomy and collage. This is an unusual supernova. It's an unusual supernova because of the mass of its progenitor. According to the current understanding, white dwarf stars explode as type IA supernovas uh, when their mass approaches 1.4 solar masses, termed the Chandrahasekar limit. 
Uh, the mass added to the star is believed to be donated by the companion star, either from the companion's stellar wind or the overflow of the Roche lobe as it evolves. However, the progenitor of SN 2003 FG reached two solar masses before exploding. The primary mechanism invoked to explain how a white dwarf can exceed the Tandor Hasekar mass is unusually rapid rotation. The added support effectively increases the critical mass. An alternate explanation is that the explosion resulted from the merger of two white dwarfs. The evidence indicating a higher than normal mass comes from the light curve and the spectra of the supernova. While it was particularly overluminous, the kinetic energies measured from the spectra appeared smaller than usual. One proposed explanation is that more of the total kinetic energy budget was expended climbing out of the deeper than usual potential well, Matthew. Do you understand how amazing that is? The champagne supernova is amazing. It's an unusual supernova out there in space doing its constant supernova bullshit that supernovas do. Did you say progenitals? I said progenitals. It is a progenital supernova. Man, you you so what you're Implying, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're implying that they had all of that on their mind when they wrote this song. Absolutely. Which is not. why it takes a literal light year to yes. get through this fucking song. It takes forever. It is a very long song. But uh, I think that this song does wrap up the album and Oasis pretty well. Mm. Last lyrics We were getting high, we were getting high, we were getting high, we were getting high. Repeated over and over and over again <laughs> to finish out the album. I think that is just a chef's kiss right there on the end. <laughs> all in all, Kyle, it's nice to revisit these records, try to determine what I really feel about them all these years mm -hmm. later. Like I just uh, said, I would say that while I do not like it, I wouldn't say I hate it as much as I did all those years ago. There are some redeeming qualities to it, and uh, he didn't steal all the songs. True. One other thing, as is my usual practice, I listen to the albums before this record and after this record, and I would say both of them, definitely Maybe, being their debut, and Be Here Now being the follow-up, are far better records than this one. I would agree. But this one gets all the love. Yep. I, la I leave you with one final thought. Mm. Uh, Max Easton wrote an article for the Faster Louder publication a few years back about the most overrated albums of all time. He places this album at number 16. Ooh, that's pretty high. And he said this about it. The album is, quote, full of anthems for the sake of anthems, and that they're all variations on only a couple of good ideas. He concluded by saying, what's the story's lasting place in 90s folklore is less about the quality of the album and more about the celebrity status and faux imagery attached to it. I'd say that sums it up for me pretty well. Yeah, that's a pretty good summation. So uh, I am curious to know what people out there think about this album. Is this an incredibly important album to you? Do you hate it like Matthew? Uh, uh, <laughs> let us know. Uh, Twitter at Audio Judo. Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. Facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo. Or if you want to get in touch with us directly, info at Audio Judo dot com uh, is the email address. Yeah. Kyle, tell me about the Patreon stuff. We've got uh, two Patreon tiers. Uh, the first one is called the Front Row Seats. It's $5 a month. Uh, and that tier includes a two-day early access to episodes, a shout-out on future episodes as a loyal producer of the podcast, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops. Those are a lot of fun. They're like 10 to 15 minutes, and they're stuff we didn't want to cover in a regular episode. And occasionally bonus content, such as uh, unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of the episodes, mostly due to our flatulence. And tasteful nudes? Yeah, uh, Occasionally. <laughs> 
the step up, the next tier from that is the backstage pass. It is $20 a month, which is a big step up, but you get some pretty good stuff. Uh, you get a very special personalized gift. Uh, you also get the chance to co-host an audio judo episode after paying for this tier for a year. Uh, you get to pick the subject of the episode, so we'll cover any album that you want, and you get everything included in the previous tier. That sounds good to me. Yeah, so you can sign up uh, if you're interested at audiojudo.com uh, and follow the link to our Patreon or patreon.com forward slash audiojudo. Perfect. I encourage everyone out there, if you haven't already, to check out our new limited release podcast called oh, yeah. Audio Judo Does Jazz. It is available at our website, audiojudo.com, or anywhere else that podcasts are podcast. We've had a blast putting it together, so uh, we think you will enjoy it. Um, yes. Coming up, we have episodes on this show uh, about Marillion, mm-hmm. Stone Temple Pilots, oh, yeah. Depeche Mode, oh. Metallica, uh, and get your Patreon started so you can get those judo chops. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for sticking around, and we uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. like Das Booty. Boom! Oh, snap! Das Booty. Das Booty. Das, dat booty. That's the Daft Punk porn ripoff is Daft Booty. <laughs> Instead of it, they've got helmets on and butt helmets on, so it just covers their butts. That's classy. It's very classy.